You are now listening to FemRegard Podcast with Tessa Markle and Carolina Alvarez. Mmm, Fem. Welcome back, Fem Fam. It's your host, Carolina Alvarez and Miss Tessa Markle. Hey, hey. <laughs> um, we're excited to bring you another guest episode. And this time, it's actually from the one and only film professor I had in college. Um, I am so excited to reconnect with him on this episode. He's currently the assistant professor of script writing and film production at the School of Media Arts in the Southern Illinois University. Um, His name is Piruz Kalea. He's a filmmaker. He's a writer. He's just overall an artist. And that is our maybe subjectively favorite people to talk to they really speak our language um I think Tessa and I she's nodding it's just um there's something about the artist journey journey that we too relate to as some coming from actors first and and just really discovering you know how to be vulnerable with yourself and the stories you want to tell and he is an Iranian filmmaker and really learns to speak to his stories and doing his latest film, Sometimes I Dream in Farsi, a documentary feature that uncovers a traumatic event with racism when he was a child. And in that film, he seeks to heal himself and his family through interviews, therapy, and role plays. Phenomenal. Definitely, it's out now. You can check it out. And he's currently fundraising for another documentary film, my Room in Tehran is called America, a documentary about a female artist's journey before and during the current protest in Iran. Definitely a lot to unpack there, but we really do focus on on telling stories and, you know, coming from the heart of it and the themes. And that's something we're super passionate about. Like Tess and I love finding a theme that we both bond over and it just makes the writing, the acting, everything really come to life. And that's what we love to share. So I really love this episode, and we know you all are going to enjoy it as well. So enjoy. I think that's what Los Angeles gives us, actually. That mm-hmm. sort of freedom to sort of find yourself, and when you're in touch with your heart and you know what your passion is it sort of it leads the way for you sort of you know yeah. because actually when I started I was a music you know music I wanted to be an actor when I first started I, no so my, no freaking way that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah so uh, my my father wouldn't let me be an actor um because you know he came from an Im- yep. immigrant family so he said just there's no no acting allowed there's no singing allowed so oh. i was actually an all-state chorus i was you know <laughs> playing first chair of saxophone and i was doing musicals but i wasn't allowed to do that to really so, do it yeah exactly so when i first entered college i just dropped out like i i entered as a neuroscience major i was a psych oh. bio major And then I just stopped going and my only entrance (laughs) into it, because there was no film school where I was going at that Mm. time, you know, I just saw this uh, guitar player in in Rainbow Records in Newark, Delaware, and I walked in and I didn't really know anything about rock bands or anything. I was so sheltered, you know, and 
he was like uh you play you know you do music and I was like I do this and I pointed at my throat and then he was like <laughs> you want to go jam and yeah. I was like yeah. yeah I didn't even know what jamming was <laughs> so he took his guitar we went to some dorm and then he just starts playing yeah and I just sang over it you mm-hmm. know like I didn't know what I was doing oh my gosh and he was like you want to start a band <laughs> yeah. I was like yeah and so I just dropped out of school and I toured with that band for like uh, three years. All did you tell your parents or were you still putting up a front? You're like, no, I'm going to New class. <laughs> I was so scared of my dad at that point that like, it's just so scary when you have like an, you know, when you come from an immigrant family and you're like the only Iranians in Delaware <laughs> <laughs> to sort of like do what I did. It was just like, it's, it's revolutionary, you know? Yeah. And so I just didn't say anything. I took all disease in my classes. So they thought I was still going to school. Yeah. And I was just touring with a rock band. Oh my God. Like the band like did really well. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually they found out and um the band did so well that it came to a point where it was like are we gonna move to LA or stay Mm -hmm. where we are right um and then at that point I basically um the band imploded on itself because they didn't really want to go there were all these other things going on and so I went into writing because I was like I gotta finish my degree Mm -hmm. they didn't have a film school and I was like okay well I'll do a I'll do an English degree so I went and did the English degree, but I took all cinema studies classes. Smart. So like horror classes, that's where I got all this, you know? And Gotcha. And I did all that. And then when I graduated, I read an interview with Bobby Louise Hawkins, who was this amazing author from Texas. And she wrote this uh, book called One Small Saga and Back to Texas. And, and it talked about this school called the Jack School. Kerak School of Disembodied Poetics with the mm. original Beatniks. Whoa. And so Ann Waldman and Allen Ginsberg started this school. And it, the way it was described, I was like, I'd like to learn from the original Beats. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. it was the only grad school I applied to. It was the only <laughs> thing I did. So it was like, and I think they accepted 10 people. Okay. Uh-huh. And I applied And you're like, poetry. I'm going for it. This, this or nothing. And I got in. Amazing. And then <laughs> Amazing. I got in for poetry. And then after the first year, Bobby was like, I took her fiction class. Yeah. And I started writing stories about my family. And she was like, oh, honey. She's like, you need to get away from all these poets. They just want to be rock stars. You've got to come to fiction with us. And I was like, well, how do I do that, Bobby? Yeah. She was like, you read a fly. I was like, I reapply. She's like, yeah, it's fiction. And I was like, again. She's like, yeah. <laughs> so I reapplied and I got in as a fiction student. Okay. And then I finished. So I like I had both degrees. Mm-hmm. And then uh, right after that, it was like I just didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, I wrote some books. Okay. And I got an agent. Oh my gosh. For and writing. then yeah. I had helped sort of my my brother get not go on that path. And he went to NYU for directing. And then he had moved to L.A. Okay. And so at that point, he was already in L.A. And he was like, come to L.A. 
you know? Right. I was like, what am I going to do there? And he was like, just come. And so I had like a choice of like going back and like doing like a teaching certificate or going to LA with 300 bucks in my pocket in mm-hmm. a Honda Prelude. <laughs> and that sounded right, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just went mm-hmm. to LA mm-hmm. and it was like, uh, you know, right when I got there, I think I stayed at Shanna Elizabeth's house in the Hollywood Hills. My brother was like babysitting her dogs. And I was like, I like Hollywood. <laughs> this is rad. <laughs> yeah. And then my brother was, uh, you know, his his roommate. Uh, and he was living right on Harvard, mm-hmm. right, right in town. Yeah. And his, bro- his roommate was like, do you want to work at the production company? And I had this thing in my life where I would always say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Because I thought it would be good as a writer or as an actor or as a creator to always learn about characters or learn how people talked or learn about an environment or a class of people. So like when I was with the band, I went to the like temp agency and then every week I would do a different job. So I'd sling chicken wings or I would be a dishwasher. I would be a flagger or a constructor. (laughs) person and yes that is such the la lifestyle i know and you're like the second per like not the second like of recently who's who started temp jobs and i think that just goes to say like if you it's okay to not 100 percent know where you're going or for even just to like give yourself more life experience especially when you're starting out like just but the temp jobs were when i was when i was 18 with the band Mm-hmm. So when I was in LA, yeah. it was just, they were like, do you want to work at the production office? Okay. Yeah. And I was like, okay. yes. <laughs> and so I went there and after being a dub logger, where I was like transcribing tape, mm-hmm. I heard there was an associate producer position. And so I just went up to the executive and I was like, you know, I heard there's an associate producer position for like a home and garden show. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was like, I-, I can do that. And he yeah. looked me up and down. <laughs> I was just gonna say do it, you know and then they sort of like quizzed me because that's what Hollywood is Hollywood right. is like they always try to like push you off your like stability to make sure like you're legit yes. and they're like what would you do in this position what would you do in this position I was like exactly. well I was a booking agent for a while and I did this and I did this and so all the jobs came in handy yeah for like LA right yes and they the couldn't magic. knock me off my seat Mm-hmm. So yes. then they were like, you're the fastest promoted associate producer of a, a network <laughs> a TV that's ever. If you fuck it up. Am I allowed to cuss on this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're like, if you mess this up, you're fired. Mm-hmm. And that was like my first day. And then I just kept working. Um, and then after that, um, there was the writer's strike. So I got I kept getting promoted. Okay. And so eventually I was a post-production coordinator in charge of a team of 25. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was like, well, I don't really want to be a TV producer. What am I doing? Like, let me get back to novels or let me get back to my creativity. Mm-hmm. And so a, a poet in Thailand was like, why don't you go and teach poetry in Korea? I was like, Korea? What's in Korea? I didn't know anything about Korea. Yeah. I thought it was Japan, actually. <laughs> like, I had no idea. And he was like, come out here. I'm going to be teaching at a school. If you don't like it, you can quit after six months. I was like, all right. I just said yes. Yeah. 
Oh my god! I went out there for like six months. I ended up uh, who would become my wife at that time, mm-hmm. and I, I ended up staying for. I was two like, years. "Is this where you met wifey?" <laughs> amazing. This is, and I ended up staying for two years, and then uh-huh. um, I ended up reading a book while I was there, and I kept dreaming about it for like thirty days. And that was The Human War by Noah Cicero. And I was like, I think I'm supposed to make a movie. Okay. And I was always afraid to make a movie without going to film school. I was like, you're not allowed to make movies unless listen, you go to film school. Our listeners who are who are scared, listen to this. You see? <laughs> <laughs> but then I sort of realized, wait a second. Like directing is like knowing all these art forms. And it's sort of like I picked it up. So like my youth was all acting. Like Mm -hmm. I did like the governor's school for excellence for acting and all this training. Mm -hmm. Then I did music and like I toured as a professional musician. Then I did writing and I published books. Right. And then I was a producer and a post-production coordinator. And I was like, I think... I can be a director. Yeah, you've got all the building (laughs) blocks. I I was like, I think I have these things. And then I ended up flying from Korea to meet the author in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh And then he was like, Piers, you're the only person that can make this movie. And I was like, I I walk out of the Denny's and I call my friend in Brooklyn. And I'm like, you want to make a movie? And um, the guy goes, yeah. So then I drove to New York City. And I met him and I met my old drummer and I was like, you guys want to make a movie? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and then that was the, the, the first film just sort of came like that. And since then, I guess it's been 12 years and every year to two years. And I don't know why I did this, but I just did feature films. I like didn't okay. even like start my with a short. Film wasn't even, yeah. uh, and my first film was like, my first critique wasn't even uh, like with like people sitting down. Like I, it was in a movie theater. Like wow. the film was playing in a movie theater. I but hope that they makes liked sense, it. Piruz. Like, I think again, from everything you've done up to that point, you've written novels. Like that's not like a short form, right? Like you've, you've right. written full pieces of work. You understand story, you understand the musicality, you understand like production. I think in, in when people are, I want to demystify this a little, just because it's like, I think you, and cause we talk about this, like for us, people could critique us and say, are you ready for a feature? You've only done a few short films, but it's again, I think everyone has their own sense of backstory and work they've done prior that I think when the feature is calling you it's calling you for a reason right and you and it doesn't mean it's still going to happen overnight but I think it's fascinating to see how like fast it worked but you had already how many years prior of like working different jobs to lead you to a point that I think then sometimes it just accelerates for those individuals such as yourself where, where it's so like exciting. You're just going for it. Like you're not like I love how fearless almost you were to be like, yeah, OK, we're going, we're doing this. And now we're we're like in theaters. Mm-hmm. That's like so I think for for us, too, it's um it's exciting to see it at, like once it it's ready, it, it really just takes off, I think. Mm-hmm. 
I believe yeah, that. That's right. my my outlook on on life. <laughs> like when you're ready, it's gonna like accelerate. Well, every like overnight right. success never really is. You know, there's always yeah. those years and years of preparation and learning and all of that that nobody else sees. They just see, you know, the big success that seems like it came out of nowhere. <laughs> so Yeah, it's absolutely not that. It was yeah. from literally um, I guess my first film it was when I was 13. Mm-hmm. So I did, whenever there was a project, like in school, I would shoot on like my VHS thing that I would borrow from friends. I didn't even <laughs> have one, right? Yeah. But whenever they said like a school project, you could use the camera, I was all about it. And for mm-hmm. whatever reason, and I guess it was because I was consuming media so much because my my father said I couldn't watch TV. I could only watch PBS and like the McNeil Lair News Hour. Education. To like be a scientist. Right. You know? <laughs> and so I would secretly like go over my friend's house and mm-hmm. like watch like, you know, Return of the Jedi and Spaceballs mm-hmm. and what, you know, whatever they were yeah. playing and like see everything. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was like constantly consuming as much as I could. And actually, one of my friends uh, recently, my my old guitarist from that band was talking about how the way that we ingest media at that time is so different from the way we ingest media now. And the example that he gave was like, when he was learning a guitar solo, like if he wanted to learn like a like an Eddie Van Halen solo for Michael Jackson's Beat It, right? Right. Like he had to literally like rewind the tape to find the part of the song and then play it back right right he had to like actively yep. listen yeah right? and then like he really wanted to listen because he didn't want to rewind the tape again yeah right to get that down right one thousand and i think that um there was there was something about that in the way I was taking in media because I was restricted. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, so, yeah, yeah, because there was that like constraint. I think where my father was like, "You can't do it." Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. made it all the more like just taboo and something that I had to have. And so when I had the chance to have the camera, it was that much more of like a magical treasure. Yeah. And that like, I I would really like do it. And I was so like, like there, I was so like spectacularly there in that mm-hmm. moment, like it was theater. And I could take all that kind of like improvisation or like spontaneously being able to like sing over a melody and then use that in what I was doing. And the, I think the first thing we did was the my US history teacher, Mr. Cheeseman, he was like doing a lesson on the civil rights and I was 12. Right. And he, w- he had shown us Mississippi burning. And then he was like, okay, now do something that deals with race. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, wouldn't it be interesting if like the South had won the civil war? And I was 12 years old at the time. I was like, what would that look like? And so I made this film at 12 years old. And it was like, you know, the the kids come home. There's there's Moxie, the slave, and then he escapes. And then all the white kids in the neighborhood, they kill Moxie. Mm -hmm. 
and oh it gosh. ends with a death. And then yeah. it was like, this is a 12 year old that did it, but then they played it in class. And then I, Mr. Cheese, I didn't realize it was controversial. Right? Yeah, right. So Mr. Cheeseman was just like, you don't have to come to study hall anymore. And I was like, <laughs> what? He was like, I just want you to keep making movies. Yeah. And so like from then on out, I just made like music videos in like the theater. And I would make like hip hop R&B videos and I would turn on all the lights and <laughs> I just kept doing that. And until I got shut down by Mr. Jameson, the vice principal <laughs> of Alexis I Middle School. But that seed was there, but I never had a camera to do it again. Yeah. And Aww. so I think there's, I think there's something about um, for your listeners, there's also something not only that like um, you build it over time and you learn all these skills and there's the process to it and then suddenly it just all clicks in alignment, right? Exactly. But I think the other thing is that you kind of have to have constraints on yourself mm -hmm. so that it's not necessarily, okay, we have 30 takes or we're going <laughs> to do this forever yeah, or like this is... Like it's, it's gotta feel like this is it. Mm -hmm. And one example that my guitarist gave was he said that, you know, he thought that Jack White got it really good in the White Stripes because in like 2001 or whenever he first came out, he always said it would be three. Mm. So like three, three vocal, you know, vocal takes three yeah. instruments okay everything was in threes and everything would be analog so it forced them to make something good with a limited amount right yeah and so if you actually think about it even me somebody like myself like making films I don't necessarily always have giant budgets like a Hollywood film right and so I'm already dealing with economic constraints but I always find that when I'm making films, I put more constraints on mm -hmm. it. So it's almost like building in a form and you're in that world. And like, there are only certain things you can do afterwards. Yeah. And then it, it's like, oh, in this film, I'm allowed to make the camera be shaky and for it to go a little bit out of focus because it makes it more authentic in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm allowed to do as long as it's consistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I'll that makes sense. You know? Yeah. I love that. I think that's a really creative way to approach it. And I think, like you said, it, it it's gonna create something more um authentic, you know, because you're not just trying over and over and over again for perfectionism when it's like, no, this is gonna be real. This is gonna be, you know, these takes are gonna be coming from these actors in a real way. This the way you handle the camera is gonna be, like you said, like maybe it's gonna be kind of shaky in this scene or it's gonna come out of focus in this scene, and that's gonna play into it. Like it's gonna be part of the art. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking right now of of the of the film I'm doing now, um, and like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, there's there's so many different styles of filmmaking, right? And then you can play in all of them. Mm -hmm. So, I think in my 
in my early years with the early films I was doing, they were all kind of like, they were my film school in a way, but even though they were going to theaters, they were, that's why I kept doing a different genre every two years, mm. because I figured that if, okay, you do a dramatic narrative, then you do a metafictional narrative, then you do a rom-com, then you do a documentary, then you do a zombie comedy, um, then, you know, like, so it leads you to your voice, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I don't think I actually found my voice until I did Sometimes I Dream in Farsi. So you're talking about that long process, right? Exactly. So even though like, my first feature film won a Best Screenplay Award, right? And right. got to the festivals and went to streaming and all that, right? Yes. Um, I still consider sometimes I dream in Farsi in 2021 and still going to festivals now to be my actual first film. Yeah, I totally my get first that. first film, which is my seventh mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. And so it's only 12 years later that I think <laughs> I've really mastered what this filmmaking thing is. And part of that came from even after doing the feature films, um, then trying the genres and then some of my instructors in my PhD program who are famous directors. Um, one of them uh, was Terrence Malick. Another was Vin Vendors. These are sort of big directors. Another was Mike Figgis. And Vim, uh, Vim Vendors was saying things like, sometimes why don't you try doing a film with a script mm -hmm. and then sometimes without a script? Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And I, I was like, and then he was like, yeah, you know, when we did Wings of Desire, he was like, I just had a poem. Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you just had a poem and you made this movie with angels? And I was just like, I want to try that. Yeah. You know, and I was yeah. like, so what can I do? And I think the, one of the first ones I did was Brunch on the 4th of July. And I was like, okay, we're going to make a film on the 4th of July. It's got to take place on the 4th of July. It was, I think it was 2014. Mm -hmm. I was like, we're going to drive to San Francisco. We're just going to use these random people that I met at a, a screening in San Francisco for my other film, Shoplifting for American Apparel. Yeah. And I was like, and then my cinematographer was in the car with me. And then he was like, so what's the film? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, we're going to come up with a film on the drive. Okay. And I was like, all it is so far that I can think of is I'm the actor because I'm a good actor. And I was like, because we have nobody else to use. And I was like, okay. So, um, so it's me. Hello. It's your star. Hi. And I was like, and, um, oh, it's the 4th of July. And so a lot of times, like, I'll make a film that's just from the title. So I was like, 4th of July. And then I thought of two things. I thought of Audrey Lord, um, who is this famous... Um, lesbian poet and essayist and she wrote an essay about the called the fourth of july which was about being a, a black young girl and then going to an ice cream parlor in washington dc and then not being served ice cream because she was from a black family at the time and mm -hmm. you know yeah um, civil rights hadn't happened and i thought 
yeah, I want to do something like that on the 4th of July. What can I say that's impactful? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, Tom Cruise made a movie called Born on the 4th of July. And I was like, what if we mash it up? I was like, brunch on the 4th of July. <laughs> and I was like, so that's funny. Yeah. And I was like, what if <clears throat> all these people are trying to find the perfect brunch place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But me as a director, I really want to like finish brunch and get everybody to get home because I invited Tom Cruise <laughs> to our barbecue later. Uh -huh. Yeah. And we got to get home to meet Tom Cruise. Right. Right. But nobody believes that Tom Cruise is going to show up. <laughs> but I believe that he's going to show up. And I was like, that's the movie. Yeah. And then Aaron was like, well, should I shoot it in black and white? I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> that was all we had. And I was like, oh we got my four God. <laughs> yeah. We went down and in four hours, we made this film where we went from like, like different brunch places. Oh my God, I love and so that. basically the idea was that Tom Cruise was this, uh, the American dream, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have a director that believes that the, the dream is possible or the right. film can be made or the, right. you know, success you can grab or yeah. like whatever it is, nobody else believes in it anymore. They're just so jaded. <laughs> you know? yep. It's over. Yeah, that it's makes over. sense. Yeah, you know, and that worked. But I think from doing those types of, and I did a bunch of other shorts like that. Experimenting. Then I went back to doing the Farsi film, mm -hmm. and like now I can now I can do a script or not do a script, and I just I find my way in it almost like almost like I'm dancing in the dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because you're you're still allowing that room for for experimentation and and just like what kind of evolves in that moment, um, which is I think what we love as as creatives and artists, like we want. I I don't want to over perfect anything, and I'm not. I personally believe in not being too too precious. I want to plan because I'm a planner, but at the end of the day, too, I just kind of like. I think what you were talking about with constraints, that's kind of what I love about having constraints is we can't be too precious. We just got to do and we got to just let what comes out of us come out with us with all the for me, it's like about themes. Like when I know the theme so ingrained inside of me, I'm just going to use my voice as an actor. Like that's our instrument is our voice and what can come out from it. And that's what I get so excited about. So um as as much as I loved and loved rewriting this script at the end of the day I know Tessa and I are gonna come together and do our magic because we've yeah. done it in these crazy short films that we've done <laughs> that are just like okay we are in the woods or we're in the desert and we just gotta roll and make it happen so I think um when you've played and like created all these various different types of works um, it makes sense that now like you're allowing your voice to kind of come through even further. And I really want to talk about um, your your film, Sometimes I Dream in Farsi, because it's it's a documentary feature. So it's not just a simple narrative. And, and I would love for you to kind of tell our audience a little bit about that and 
and why you felt ready to even like, you know, tell your story in a very vulnerable way that I loved. I like cried reading your journal entries. <laughs> they were so sweet. Um, well, I didn't expect to make a, a serious movie. Mm-hmm. So again, it was- you're a funny it, guy. <laughs> well, well, I, I think up to that up to that point, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't know that it was there. But mm-hmm. I was actually making another film called Apocalypse Later. Oh, okay. Which was like a spoof again on Apocalypse Now and a, and a mm-hmm. title. Yeah. And so I had like actors and poets and like philosophers around a table. Mm-hmm. And I said, the title of the movie is Apocalypse Later. Tell me what you see or what you think it is. And whatever you say it is, that's what the movie is. And I think, you know, Kevin Ramsey, the the Broadway uh, dancer and singer, and he was one of the people at the yeah. table. And he's like, I see a girl and she's walking in the, you know, in the <laughs> forest. And she says, I'm hungry. And I go, right now we see a girl. And she's walking in the forest and she says, I'm hungry. And like, so I shot that for almost, I think, a year of uh, whatever they said, I would film it, I would find the actors and I was Mm -hmm. doing all this. And then at one point, Kevin Ramsey asked me what my apocalypse was. He was asking me to get deeper like you, like, what is the theme? Like, what is underneath all this? Yeah. He wanted me to get to sort of the roots of what it was. And then suddenly in that moment, I think it was, you know, Trump had just done the Muslim ban. And then there were the the children at the border was on TV. And it was all sort of like in my subconscious, in my conscious mind. And I suddenly remembered that my apocalypse was this moment when a barber refused to cut my hair when I was nine years old. And my dad had done like a a sit-in in the barbershop and refused to leave until the barber would cut my hair. And I remember the police were involved. And then suddenly, as I'm telling the story, I just started crying uncontrollably, like because I actually regressed. Like I became that child and there was all this pain. And I just started crying like crazy cry. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like that kind of like, it was such a well of emotion and mm. nobody knew what to do. And so I was there with famous actors, Ray Haratian, who was from A Girl Who Walks Home Alone at night. <laughs> he was at the table. So like, he didn't know what to do. And then the camera operators started running it. They're like, what's Pierre? What? what? I thought we were doing a comedy. Why, why is Pierce crying? <laughs> nobody knew what was going on. And the very next day I just started going into therapy And um, the therapist thought, you know, was like, you went through a serious traumatic event. I was like, oh, I thought everybody goes through this. And she's like, no, actually, (laughs) not when you're nine years old and not, you know, like, this was really, really bizarre situation. It was even more traumatic the way it even transpired for you and that it wasn't dealt with. And you sort of block this. Uh, You've it's been there this whole time. And I was like, well, what do I do? And they were like, well, why don't you try Gestalt therapy? And I said, what's that? They're like, role play. Mm. And I was like, okay. And so I did a role play with her and I played the barber and then I played my dad and then I played me. And I did it one time through and I said, this is really good. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was like, but I don't want to do it again. And I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I want to save it for the camera. And she said, you're crazy. <laughs> I was like, no, um, this needs to be documented. Because immediately I recognized there are so many people that have mental health issues or have probably gone through a traumatic racist incident. Yeah. And maybe they can't afford uh, to go to a therapist. And maybe they they think therapy, um, especially if you're a person of color, there's sort of like a taboo, you know, mm-hmm. even on, among the Iranian community of sort of like, if you go to a therapist, you're somehow quote unquote crazy, or, you know, like there's sort of these like older ideas around therapy. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I was like, well, maybe if I do this, it'll help people and they can watch this film and they can resolve some issues. And that was sort of the beginning. And so I just started doing role plays with my father and then my mother. And then um, I took a trip with my cousin um, and I thought that would be important because she was queer and she, you know, like she brought her perspective to it mm-hmm. as a woman. And I really wanted yeah. a sort of female perspective with me along, especially a young female perspective that like, mm-hmm. how was she experiencing it different from Generation X? Mm-hmm. And I wanted a generational thing as well. So like we had like boomers. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, like through the whole thing. And then yeah. um, towards the end of the film, everything started smashing together. So uh, all my crew started fighting with each other um, because of what was happening in the country. So like literally... Wow. I was going through in this microcosm yeah became this macrocosm so literally outside my apartment in LA were the George Floyd protests and where I was filming was where I got tear gassed for the Black Lives Matter marches yeah and I filmed all of that and all of that was in the film and then the pandemic was in the film and so all of it sort of coalesced right. and it was like, uh, you know, like uh, one of my one of my great teachers sometimes said that like the job of the artist is sort of to keep their pulse on the on the on the society or their pulse on what's happening in the world, and it it's sort of like just it, it it's a it's sort of like a river flowing through you and combining through you. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just been this weird thing that I it all happened like that. And yeah. so the film sort of culminates in um, everyone fighting with each other, just like America was fighting. And I sort of um, come to this resolution for those that want to see the film and, and things like that, where um, I, I have to sort of understand what that situation was for me and also develop empathy for others and their perspectives of where they were coming from. But I also end up confronting the very barber that did that to me at the end of the film. Wow! And so it's sort of a, a, a huge shock for people too. Yeah. When they recognize that at the, at the very end and, and maybe I've, I've, I've spoiled the entire film, but I don't think I have. No. Because like the it's 
It's one thing to say it and another thing to see it too, which is why we love films, right? It's It's one thing to tell your story and then to really visually tell your story, put yourself in. That's that's so impactful. I I can't uh, wait to watch it. (laughs) It's a it's a film that's you know I don't think I can you you can make it. It's just one of those films, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But um, the other thing is like I'm making a film now. Uh, my room in Tehran is called America, and I find that the same thing is happening to me. Mm-hmm. So for the past two years, I've been documenting a, an Iranian artist that's been trying to sort of, um, you know, sort of break free from Iran and 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 get out from under the censorship and be exactly. a woman and 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 that's been two years, and then suddenly the entire country has had these female-led protests. So now it's become like all the women of a country. And so I'm in that same thing again. And I don't know really how to explain it other than uh, maybe if we all keep doing the things that we're doing um, and we stick with it long enough, I think that when we get out of the way of what we're doing mm-hmm. and we're mm-hmm. serving the purpose of other voices and like we really take our ego out of it if we can um because my ego's still in it you know like i want it to be good and you know there's so many times i'm talking to myself but there's also so much of me that like wants to uh really be able to help this artist and then help Iran and then help even the barber or help my friends or help you or help your listeners. And, and then I think all of that, um, when you, when you come from that kind of like really open perspective, Mm -hmm. that's, that's also a very powerful thing. Yeah. when you're doing filmmaking and I think a lot of times like there's there's the thing that uh the that Carolina was talking about um the the theme and the theme can create this deepness inside you yes that the smartphone has taken away from us mm-hmm. so very quickly <laughs> the we message of our next film <laughs> <laughs> very quickly we can get like a youtube tutorial right right and like have like a surface level understanding of something yes but it's very different to like be like deep with something absolutely yes. and and i think we're like we're fighting something and it's not sort of like a curmudgeonly like older person to a younger person thing it's no everyone's dealing with this like i'm dealing with it we're like um we kind of need to understand what's happening when we can control our entire lives with this mm-hmm. yeah and because we can control our entire lives with this then the way we deal with each with with people on social media if they disagree with us we unfriend them it's like removed. And yeah. then when we come back to physical reality outside of COVID, people are like, well, I don't want to hear that yeah. from you. 
I don't want to deal with you. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're in this other thing. And we also don't want to get deep with things. It's like, well, why do why do I need to learn that? Right. Why don't why do I need to go deeper with that? Um, but the best films are always the ones that really go to that deep place and really affect you. You know, I mean, I, personally, I love films that don't have a happy ending <laughs> that just like ruin me and I'm like crying by the end <laughs> yeah. of it because of that. Same. You know, it really affects you and it goes to that deep place. Yeah. I think that's why I think to further um, speak to the work you're doing right now, Piruz, with, um, you know, what you've done with Sometimes I Dream in Farsi and then My Room in Tehran is called America. They're both forcing viewers in a way to look outside themselves and to like put themselves in someone else's position and and limitations and that's why we do what we do as filmmakers. And and sometimes it can feel trivial, like, oh, is making a film can feel so egotistic and like just for yourself. But I think filmmakers, and I want to speak for, I think all of us in a way, it's like, we do, like, I know I can't really want to make a film if it doesn't hit something that's really deep inside of me that I want to say. And I think same thing for your films. Like that's, I feel like what, you know, I feel like your journey has been is you've come to a place now where you're like, I can now like, I want to help others and I outside of myself, but myself is still there. And I don't think that's wrong. Like you shouldn't feel removed from it either. In a sense, it should work together to reach a deep meaning for others to like sink themselves into. And, and I think that's the beauty of film, like, and that's why it should still exist other than these minute long 30 second long little tidbits that sometimes to me, I'm just like, I love TikTok for whatever it is on, on that end, but I can't, that's not my medium and it won't be because I, I just can't do what I feel and say in that 30 second limitation. It doesn't work for me. Um, and that's like my own stance on that. <laughs> but I think what you're doing and what you're, what people are are now like so, from what has happened in the past two years are, are kind of, yeah, they like the the kind of, that's where I feel like it's toxic is getting down these little dark holes of just 30 second whatever. And it doesn't always like take you there. I, I mean, I've, I've read studies that people will go through an hour long time lapse of looking at whatever and they, they don't feel good when they like get out, zapped out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're removed from, like real real life <laughs> and what's when our stories are real life in in sometimes us a more fictionalized sense what me and Tessa are doing but in your in your stories they're they're documents of like what's actually happening so I love that and I don't know if I, I don't want to speak for your work but that's what I I'm that's my interpretation of what I'm seeing from you and I love it it's no, beautiful. It sounds beautiful but I, I also like fictional films too mm-hmm. And um, um, I'm definitely going to be making some fictional films. And um, I think that when we're making those, they can also be just as impactful. No, that's absolutely, um, absolutely. There was, um, there's a quote from um, Jean-Luc Godard. He said, when we're, that a documentary tends towards fiction and fiction tends towards documentary. Mm. Yes, I love that. That's that's 
perfectly you know, so it's like, and that's what i was trying to say like tess and i are doing fiction but it's real like it's very yeah. real to what we've experienced felt whatever and that's not to say you're not into that either and I'm, I'm just saying what the examples of these two works that we're both working on currently how interesting and it, that that quote is perfectly sums up what i was trying to say <laughs> yes <laughs> no, but it, it gets me to to something i i sort of lost my train of thought with what i was going with with the once you start talking about um, smartphones, you get into a, a very deep rabbit's hole. But that idea of like um, you talking about the theme and deepness and like going into a fiction film and how you end up storyboarding it and you end up thinking about the frames of it mm-hmm. and like just how I see people put films together and a lot of times what I see um, filmmakers do these days is they focus so much about the color or they focus so much about what the the technical aspects of what's going on but they aren't really thinking about the deepness they aren't thinking about Mm -hmm. the theme and mm-hmm. so I think I figured out my connection with what I was getting to, <laughs> which is that because of the the lack of deepness with the phone, we're sort of forgetting that that deepness in our storytelling, mm-hmm. in yeah. in the in the way in which we're approaching our fiction films, that we can we can actually bring that forward. Mm-hmm. And so these surface level things that are the technical. Like I could make a film with just anything. Like I could take like this this old, you know, like one of these old shoot point and shoot cameras and make a pretty good movie. Yeah. Because um, that's what holds with up. Just that, it's the theme. The story is yeah. good. I love that you said that because that's just I think what gives me courage more so because as the director also in our film, like first time directing feature, I just I feel ready because I understand story and themes, like the way they live inside me. But what gets intimidating are the tech specs. Like I've now trying to understand more the camera, the lighting. Like I know to some degree I have to have an awareness and I, I, I think I, I have a good idea of what I want it to look like. The color, for instance, all of that. But that was something I've had to like, I at first I was scared to, be the director for this film for those reasons like I've not under I didn't go to film school I don't understand the tech right. spec language and I do know a bit more now but I'm really relying on the the story the themes to carry me the way me and Tessa act and interact with that to, to shine through for our stories so it's nice can I say something about that real quick because mm-hmm. I desperately want to say something about that. <laughs> yeah. um and and that just has to do with like I have a completely opposite approach to that, which is that um, I find a lot of that kind of thing. Um, it's not necessarily off-putting, but I think it comes from a, a very sort of uh, I don't know whether it's it's that we live in a patriarchal society, you know, in most parts of the world, right? Right. Very male-dominated and. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of competition that's sort of forced down our throats when actually I think human society is not competitive. Uh, I think we're actually more team builders and we're just taught to believe 
that were competitive by a male dominated society. Mm-hmm. And, and so I have That's a, deep. I think that <laughs> actually, um, um, uh, if you, I, I heard something recently on a, a podcast called Threshold about how um, there are some primatologists that think that it's actually that human species is more related to the bonobo monkey rather than the chimpanzee. And the bonobo monkey is not competitive w- uh, with each other. Mm-hmm. They, they work in teams and they're good with strangers. And we are more genetically close to the bonobo monkey but they've never been first and foremost because we had male scientists and this is the idea who sort of were more interested maybe in the chimpanzee because it was male dominated, Mm -hmm. whereas the bonobo monkeys were female led. Interesting. Oh shit. And so (laughs) I really wanted to pass on this idea to the two of you. And also to let you know, I've always been conscious of this in all of my films. And I, I, when I start my sets, Mm -hmm. okay. I never know who's going to come on because you hire whoever you're going to come on. So sometimes you have shitty people and they do their job well, and you just have to deal with them. Right. Yeah. Right. But I always, I don't start my sets at 5. AM. Okay. Like uh, most Hollywood sets. I I start my, my day at 10 AM and I always make everybody brunch in my kitchen. Love that. Okay. And then I let everybody sit around the big table together. So the actors, the crew, it doesn't matter who's above the line, everyone's sitting together. And of course, you have this very masculine bravado of tech mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Where (laughs) these operators or these grips or, you know, the best boy, whoever's talking, they yeah. just go on, well, the new Ari Alexa, and yeah. all of it is just nonsense. <laughs> nonsense. There's going to be a new camera. There's always going to be a new camera that yeah. you can mm-hmm. rent. The cameras are always getting better and better. We understand And that. pretty soon you're just going to have a camera that you just push one button. Yeah. And ISO and shutter and all this is going to be taken care of. So really... I try to ignore all of that. And after I make breakfast, people see that it's a meal Mm -hmm. and I play music and I let everyone become human again. Mm -hmm. And that's how to sort of start a set and the day right. And I always turn the conversation away from like stuff that's just unnecessary Mm -hmm. so if it gets into like that tech stuff I'll just say well aren't these pancakes wonderful (laughs) yeah and And on that note I love that (laughs) I love that approach I love that necessary we have to get away from this male toxicity okay Mm -hmm. it has dominated Hollywood (laughs) for too long agreed yes and we need to we need to encourage a different way of filmmaking that's more about empathy, understanding, kindness, teamwork, uh, friendliness. And this isn't about being Mr. Rogers. Right. You can be tough. You can be firm. You can give consequences. You can fire people. 
you can tell people they're not doing a good job. You can be gruff. Right. Um, um, you can be shitty sometimes too and apologize for it later, but you certainly don't need to be toxic on a set. Yeah. And you certainly don't need to sort of like prove your, you know, like have to prove yourself to be like, I know this, this spec that, yeah. None of that matters. None of that matters. And it's so like anybody can learn this on a YouTube tutorial. And so what all they're doing is they, they watched a YouTube tutorial the day before and they're coming in to sort of like, with their crib sheets and being like, well, you know what I learned last night on the, the <laughs> and so now, now I have students that come up to me, the the younger, um, yeah. the youngest generation now, post COVID. And this yeah. is just last week, believe this. Okay. I had a young woman come to me and she was so upset um, because she was worried that she didn't have the technical skills Mm -hmm. and she was about to graduate. And I said, well, why don't you work on your piece and then bring it into me and let's take a look, you know? Mm -hmm. And she had taken my script writing class. Mm -hmm. She had taken creating across digital media platforms and she was just in my narrative film production class. We watch what she does. I start tearing up a little bit because it touched me. I go, well, shit. I was like, this is great. Yeah. I was like, I thought you weren't paying attention to any of my classes. <laughs> I was like, you learned everything. Yeah. You learned every single skill. Yeah. I was like, what were you talking about? And she was like, yeah, I'm a sponge. <laughs> I was like, so I said, you know, notice, and this is me talking to her, I said, you thought that just because you can't operate premiere very quickly Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be a good director or that you Mm -hmm. hadn't operated a camera as much as these other folks that talk about it all the time. But look at what you did. You understood the deepness of it. You framed it the way you saw it and it's Mm -hmm. beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you edited it well because you're intelligent and you understood the story of what you were telling yeah and everything made sense and I was like now I was like these are just little things you Mm -hmm. need to learn this little technique I was like look at this on premiere I was like look you can just push this little thing you can just crack (laughs) that audio like that and she was like "Ooh, what's that I was like that's it just a little pull that focus up like that yeah that's it boom that's it and she's like, that's it? I said, that's it. That's and it. those are the I things, like, like you said, you can learn online. Hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's Literally. It. YouTube. Yeah. That's what we did. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I think the technical stuff is the least important in filmmaking. Yeah. But the the newer generations are emphasizing it so much mm-hmm. because I think they're afraid of the challenge mm-hmm. of the deepness because it is actually that deepness yep. that takes real time yeah and actually takes reading yeah <laughs> and nobody he's holding a book guys it, <laughs> it yes. takes reading it takes but not only reading yeah. watching lots of uh-huh. movies yeah so Francois Truffaut I think would watch like 
uh, four movies a week was his daily or it was, I don't know if it was two movies a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time where I was watching maybe four movies a day, wow. a day. Yeah. Makes so sense. it's like, I think you need to like the, whatever your parents told you, there's the filmmakers out there listening. You need to consume everything. Marvel. Yes. Uh, high art cinema. Yes. Experimental <laughs> cinema. Yes. LGBTQ cinema, yes. Everything, everything. Take it all in and you'll learn. That's your master class. Everything, <laughs> and then you'll be able to build your lightsaber. And yes, yes. yes. And I, I think that's really great advice to end on. And it's because it, it's very, it's encouraging and it's also motivational. Like, you know, it reminds you like, this is what's important and this is the work you need to do to get there, you know? Um, and on that note, I would love for you to share with our listeners um, how they can, you know, find your work, how they can follow your journey, get in touch with you, anything like that that you would like to share and promote. Okay, so they can go to the easiest way is I like Nirvana, like the band dot mm-hmm. Okay. And so I named uh, the label that because I like the state of mind. And I also like the band Nirvana. Fuck mm-hmm. um, yeah. And <laughs> yes, um, but that same uh, URL, you can also go to PiersKalea.com, but that's going to be a lot harder to spell. So I would just say I like Nirvana.com. And if they go there, they can see all the films or get links to anything they want to. Perfect. Perfect. Farsi got picked up for distribution. Congrats. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, it'll be streaming somewhere and it's still playing festivals. Amazing. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Piruz, for joining us today. Yeah, this is fantastic. Amazing uh, just conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. It just warms our souls. I'm glad to to talk. Um, It was very fun to do it. And you got me in a moment where um, I had something to say. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So thank you, Tessa. We did our job. Absolutely. (laughs) That's good. That's That's right. Yeah, there we go. Thanks for listening to FemRegard Podcast. If you like what you hear, tune in every Friday for more tips on the filmmaking business and insightful conversations with industry professionals. We can only grow with your support, so please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also join the FemFam on Patreon. For more on us, check us out at femregard.com. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.